The healthcare sector in recent months has been hit by a number of large hacker attacks. Those cyber attacks include assaults on health insurers, including Anthem and Primera Blue Cross, as well as large attacks on provider organizations, including UCLA Health. So, what steps are healthcare entities taking to defend against hacker attacks? I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, executive editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Reed Steffen. Director of IT Security at St. Luke's Health System, which is based in Boise, Idaho. Reed will be speaking to us about some of the steps that his organization has been taking to defend against hacker attacks and other emerging threats. So now, Reed, what do you make of all these recent hacker attacks that we've been seeing in the healthcare sector lately? Well, it's certainly not surprising for those that have been in the, the cybersecurity field for any period of time. This is just business as usual. I know that there's been more press attention on this lately, but the, the, the tea leaves, for those that have been reading them, have indicated that this has been underway and will continue to be a way of life for us. You know, the reality is that healthcare, we possess, you know, some of the same sensitive data that a financial services firm would have, but we also layer that with a whole host of, of medical information that makes healthcare a very attractive target. And then there's the perception and the reality that in some instances healthcare lags behind some other industries in the overall cybersecurity maturity. So again, that just I think makes us a a more attractive target to the adversaries that are out there. So Reed, in light of these hacker attacks, what steps is St. Luke's taking to guard against becoming a victim of these external bad actors? Well, so we certainly invest in some of the basic blocking and tackling that, that any uh, good company is going to take steps to ensure that they have shored up. We're also trying to make sure that we operate with a, an assumption of compromise mentality. So we don't have this notion that we're going to block and prevent every possible attack against our enterprise. So we've therefore tried to layer and tried to invest in technology and processes that allow us to identify when we maybe have had an incursion in our network so that we can then respond and that we can take remediation activity as quickly as possible. So on a given day, we have roughly 15 million events that get logged in our security incident event management system. I just, I'll I'll never have the budget to hire the staff to cull through that much data as a nonprofit. So we look to partner with with vendors and suppliers that can help us cull that data down into something much more manageable. And we've been fairly successful in identifying solutions that help us take 15 million events and whittle that down to a handful of events that truly have interest to us and investigate those. How do you go about investigating these incidents? How do you determine which ones really need to be looked at? We rely on sharing data with trusted partners. And so we, we've we had good success in collaborating with, with other uh, partners, not just in healthcare, but also outside of healthcare, so that if something adverse is happening in one of our trusted partners' networks, we can get access to what we term indicators of compromise, those kind of digital signatures that they've seen in their environment, that we can then replay and look for in our environment so that if we have a match, then we have a really high degree of confidence that that is an actual incident that warrants the time and the attention of one of our analysts to trace down and figure out what happened, what we need to respond with, and what the next steps are. 
Now, in light of all these attacks that we have been seeing in the healthcare sector, and it seems like every day there's a new organization that says that they've been hacked, have you seen sort of an uptick in the sort of suspicious activity that you need to examine? We haven't seen really an uptick in activity. It's We kind of have a baseline level that we've, we've seen and continue to see. Again, I think this speaks to what we see in, in the world around us is an uptick, I think, in, in general awareness about the nature of the threat in healthcare. And then with that increased awareness, I think you have healthcare companies that are more vigilant in trying to prevent and detect when they have an issue. And I think those things all kind of play hand in hand to the increase then we see in disclosures of breach and also just general discussion and acknowledgement that healthcare truly is a target and is under attack. So, Reed, when it comes to this changing cyber landscape that we're seeing, what keeps you up at night most? For me, it's just this constant thought I have that there's so much going on that we just we just don't know. We're we're very much defending and reacting based on what we know, which is great. But I also fully understand that there's a significant element out there of activity and and focused effort that are in areas that we just don't have visibility into and there just isn't a threat intelligence sharing that happens broadly enough yet to let me be comfortable that we're truly looking at and identifying all the vectors of attack and risk that we have out there. Now on a day-to-day basis when it comes to protecting patient information, what's more difficult to defend against these days? Is it hackers or insiders and why? So I still say it's insiders, which has always been my mindset. A determined insider who is a little bit savvy has a much higher degree of of success in in their desire to try and exfiltrate or access data that they, they shouldn't have or shouldn't use for any non-business purpose. The reality is they initially have an advantage because they have that basic access to the network. They're a trusted entity to some regard. And so based on that that trusted toehold they already have, they can leverage that to then elevate their privilege or elevate their access to then get to those areas uh, of data or processes that they don't want access to to be able to accomplish, you know, some malicious desire or focus. Uh, We certainly, you know, have a threat from external parties, but I think it may have a little more of a difficult prospect to get that initial beachhead access to the network that an insider already has. So now when it comes to ID and access management, are there any special measures that you're taking to ensure that only authorized users have access to patient data? For instance, are you using any sort of role-based access for EHR access either on-site or remotely? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have a variety of, of clinical applications. We have multiple EHRs. One of our focus areas is we're partnering with our human resources department to clearly establish job roles and titles that are consistent across our, our enterprise so that a, a nurse in one part of our health system, a nurse one, for example, is the same job and function as a nurse one in another part of our health system. And that's not always the case. And we found that as we work with HR and clearly define those job roles, that it's a much easier proposition to enact that role-based access control that you just talked about. So then when someone is hired as a nurse one, then they get 
this access that we predefined and vetted with a business that is appropriate for a nurse one. And then any additional access outside of that has to be requested by their manager. It would then go to our identity access management team. That additional access will get logged in our system as an exception. And so then we avoid the situation that we've had in the past where someone's hired and the hiring manager says, I just hired Bill. He does the same job as Alice. You know, please make his access look just like Alice's. The problem with that is, Alice may have been here for 15, 20 years and have changed roles along the way and may have not had her access removed as she changed roles. So she may have accumulated a set of access that's far beyond what she really needs for her day-to-day -day job, and now you've then given that to Bill. So we've had some good gains and some good results partnering with HR to define the, the job titling at that level and then working with the different supervisors to then define the access that that job title needs. So, Reed, going back to that example involving a nurse named Alice who's been there a long time, would you go back and sort of reevaluate the sort of access that she has and adjust it to something that's based more on what she needs today versus what might have happened in the past? Yeah, absolutely. And so in the past, what I saw when I first arrived here is that was viewed as an IT activity, and we're starting to pivot on that now and partner with, with the business and make them understand that just as with finance, they're responsible for their budget, they're also responsible for the access levels that their employees have. We are underway in a process where managers then, on a periodic basis, are required to do access reviews for their employees. So in this case, Alice's manager would get a, a report that shows, here's all of the access that Alice has, and her supervisor would then they would be responsible to go through and review that access. And if anything there is no longer appropriate, they would indicate that. And then the provisioning team would then go and modify Alice's access to make it commensurate with her actual job duties. What about systems administrators? What steps are you taking to protect their credentials from either being stolen or used in, inappropriately to access your networks and data? So we rolled out last year a shared account password management tool to help us better uh, get the range around this so that if I'm, a, if I'm a domain admin or an admin for a network device or appliance, I don't just always possess the credentials to go in and do that work, but there's actually a system that I, I log into. It's a two-factor authentication process, so that helps control the, the risk of someone who's not authorized accessing that. They then check out, per se, the credentials they need for the particular system or device that they need to admin access rights to perform some activity on. They do their work, and when they're done, those credentials get checked back in, and they're available then for the next person. So the nice thing about this is that we don't have an admin who's walking around knowing what the current administrative password is for that particular service or that particular account. That password gets changed randomly as people check it out for their, their business need and then check it back in. We also have an audit trail then of, of who's checked it out, what they've done with that, those credentials, why they had access to them. And so that helps with post-mortem analysis. Uh, it helps with change control, process review. And it's, it's been a very successful approach for us. Thanks, Reed. I've been speaking to Reed Steffen of St. Luke's Health System, I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.